I keep hoping this stage fright will get better. I think it's getting worse. Uh, Brian began with confession. Uh, my confession is I'm very conflicted this morning. This week has been excruciating in many ways. The events in Nashville, the helicopters crashing, storms demolishing homes and lives being shattered. And then you open to Exodus 23 and there's this incredible promise, but it opens up a dilemma. Uh, so I'm going to try to address the dilemma by way of analogy, and analogies are always risky. Uh, sometimes they help and sometimes they hurt. Uh, many of you here know that I've taken up wood turning in the last two plus years. Uh, Turned a few pieces in high school. The woodworking teacher never trusted us with a wood lathe because he knew how easy it was to get hurt. And he had to stand right there watching us whenever we were using it, so we didn't get too many chances. I turned a couple of small candlestick holders, and uh, that was about it with the lathe. Got to use all kinds of other power tools after I'd spent six weeks memorizing safety rules. And thankfully, I have all my digits. So those six weeks, I think, were probably well invested. Uh, not every woodworker that I know can say the same. Um, the one guy who cut off both thumbs, I still can't totally figure that one out. But anyway, uh, that's for another day. Um, after I got started wood turning, friends found out and... Uh, lots of people have gifted me wood. You know, hey, John, I just saw a big tree down on the side of the road. You think you want it? Um, we, we cut a tree out in front of our yard, and you think maybe you could make a bowl out of it. I've, I don't know, probably 30, 40 phone calls like that, text messages. And I appreciate them, but right now I won't be coming to get any of it. But then there's there've been a handful of people who've been very persistent and they've brought me wood. Literally. Uh, one guy had a small Nissan and he filled his back seat and the trunk full of box elder from up in Cookville area where his son had taken down a tree. And I've turned some beautiful bowls out of it and I appreciate it, but I had my shop piled full of gifted wood. So bad there were times I couldn't even walk around a big circle that I ought to be able to get around all the time. So I declared no more wood coming in until I've either rough turned or finished turned all that I've got right now. Uh, 
I was also gifted a couple, three pieces of wood right here on this property. Uh, a persimmon tree in David and Lauren's yard that has an interesting story as to why this tree was cut down, and I'll touch on it just briefly. But uh, if we could just go to the next slide. The friend who brought me the carload of box elder has a son who's a musician who plays this instrument. And I had made a bowl for his daughter-in-law that he had given her for recently for her birthday. And the family loved it so much, he said, my son's got a birthday coming up and I want you to make the bell. That's the area in this red loop, that part of this horn out of wood, if you could. And I'd like to be out of light-colored wood because I'm going to color it gold some way, somehow. But you don't have to worry about finishing it. I'll finish it. So I thought, that's an interesting request and quite a challenge. And I remembered this piece of persimmon laying over in one of those stock stacks on my floor. And I was able to get a piece out of the larger chunk. And if we could go to the next slide. That, that's, that's what I turned out of that piece of persimmon. A close proximity. Not, it's about a quarter scale in actual size compared to the typical size. There's a range for that particular bell on that particular horn. The reason I became the proud owner of these chunks of persimmon is their dog would eat the persimmon fruit when it would drop on the ground and they had to make frequent trips to the veterinarian because the persimmons and the dog didn't cohabitate well. And David decided Something's got to go, can't get rid of the dog, got kids, but I can get rid of this tree. And so he texted me one day and said, I'm taking down a persimmon tree, you want some chunks. At that point, I wasn't overflowing, so I said, yes, he brought them, I loaded them up, they laid in my shop. What in the world does this have to do with Exodus 23? Okay, that's, that's your question. Let's turn to the passage. Exodus 23, beginning with verse 20. I'll be reading from the NIV. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion. Since my name is in him. 
if you listen carefully to what he says and do what I, all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet, and the Hebrew word here is translated in older translations that way, and there's a different translation here. Be honest, we really don't know what the word means. God's sending something ahead. to drive the Hittites, Canaanites, and Hivites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me. Because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and what it reveals to us of your character. Lord, we confess that there are sections that raise troubling questions for us. Sometimes we have the right answers, but our emotions are contorted, conflicted. We pray that you and your grace will continue to bear with us, stretch us, challenge us, shape us. 
We want to be salt and light in our world. At times we think of ourselves as doing a better job than Israel, and yet at times we recognize that we can be quite the failure. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your persevering love. Help us in our investigation of your word to open ourselves up to you for challenge and change and growth and encouragement. In Jesus I pray, amen. When you look at this story from Israel's perspective, they're entering the promised land. And yet Exodus is not oblivious to the reality that there are other people already in the land. And this is the first indication in the flow of the Pentateuch, the Torah, that God's planned action is to eradicate the current inhabitants of this land. And he's sending an angel ahead of his people with the capacity to make this a reality. Many find this section of the Old Testament offensive and their justification for why they would reject the Judeo-Christian God. Others say we, we like Jesus, but we don't like the God of the Old Testament. I wish, honestly, that I could just gloss over this passage. within my humanity. That would be far easier than sitting with it and stewing on it and being troubled by it. But you see, we're entering Holy Week Easter's next Sunday. And the arrangement for these preaching sections have set us up so next week we're in the appropriate section for Easter. But that means I got the short straw. It wasn't intentional for me, it was intentional for next week. But when you're rushing to next week, sometimes you forget about what's coming this week. 
Well, actually, we weren't rushing. We were sort of setting it up. The resurrection is this incredible, triumphant reality in the biblical message. But the cross is this horrendous, encounter of divine holiness extending grace and upholding his own justice with the damaging reality of sin. I think in general here in the U.S., we, those of us who think about these things at all, excuse me, take sin far too lightly. I think there's a desire that God ought to just be able to sort of wave his hand and say, it's really not that big of a deal. And yet, if that's true, the death of Jesus is an affront to anything that could be considered holy. Sin is not insignificant. If it was, he wouldn't have died. If it was, that penalty would not have been real. How can you worship a God who would send an angel to destroy thousands of people is the crassest way to grapple with the hard context of Exodus 23. Well, before we answer that question or attempt to, and some of you are going to go away shaking your head saying, John, you really didn't do a very good job with that. And, and I'll be right there with you. I told you, I'm conflicted. Let's turn to Genesis 15 for just a moment. Th this is another covenant context. We, we know uh, from the last few weeks, you know, this Exodus 23, they're, they're at the mountain. 
God's called them to come up as close as they can come, and yet there are barriers to keep them from going any further. And they hear his voice, and they see the lightning, and they say, we can't withstand being in God's presence. We'll surely die. God, you speak to Moses. Moses, you speak to us. That'll be what we, that, that's what we need. We, we need a mediator. We need a, a go-between. You're, you're too strong. You're too horrible in this closeness for us. In Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant with Abram. I'll start reading in verse uh, 16. God's talking about the captivity, uh, or not the captivity, but their enslavement in Egypt. Far in the distance, after 400 years in the land of Egypt, God says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Uh, Abraham had been told to take certain animals and cut them in half, long ways, and lay the two halves with their back, backbones, the split laid open. And it's about dark. And this smoky pot of fire goes down between those Split animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. Some of these, the same people groups who are mentioned in Exodus 23. The whole story of the Exodus is the story of God being faithful to his promises to Abram. He's the ultimate promise keeper, he's the way maker. He's the deliverer of Israel. And he's taking them into the promised land. And yet, there's somebody there already. And that opening verse that I read gives us some little thought of opening how we're going to grapple with this. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Abram is there in the land, the promised land. But he's told, 
You're not going to own any of it. The only piece that he had rights to, legal, legitimate possession rights to, he buys a, a bit later as a place to bury his wife's body. The cave of Machpelah. From the Hittites. Their sins have not yet reached full measure. It's going to take a far better philosopher than me to traverse this difficult terrain well. There's a certain mindset of rejection of God, of rebellion to God, of perseverance in that over a prolonged period of time that finally God says, that's it. Judgment and punishment Are the divine recourse. When we get to Exodus 23, it seems very abrupt. But I want you to remember Genesis 15 is 500 years earlier, four to 500 years earlier. It's not abrupt. Now that's still not to say it's easy to comprehend or to imagine. Sin... is more destructive. It's more damaging to God's beloved than persimmons in that dog. But our modern culture right now in the U.S. has very great difficulty with the concept of sin. If we're going to be true to Scripture, if we're going to be true to the cross, We're going to have to hold on to this biblical concept that there's rebellion that so contradicts God's own personal nature 
that judgment. It's the only way forward. I think deep within us, many of us who might want to be done with this archaic, ancient word realize there are situations that provoke the deepest groanings within us. The photograph of that nine-year-old girl with her hand pressed against the bus window terrified as she's leaving Covenant School on Monday has gone around the globe. And if you have any inkling of empathy, you couldn't see that and not shed tears. And there's a deep groaning within us. God, why? Why? Why would someone take weapons of destruction into a school and kill, best we can tell, total strangers? Why would lawmakers just totally reject the question of whether or not certain weapons ought to be sold so easily, if at all? Why has our culture become so uncivil that we can't even discuss some of these hard questions? If you're like me, you may have been raised to not question God. But thank God, eventually you discover those psalms of lament in the book of Job. And you realize some pretty well-known, famous people went through their dark valleys of the shadow of death and cried out, why, why, God, why? Lament. is an appropriate response in the face of abject evil. However you define that. And I beg you, I implore you to not shut 
people around you down who are lamenting because it makes you uncomfortable. Please, please don't. Don't try to explain away the gut-wrenching angst that they're grappling with. That's not the way of faith. In Exodus, it's not glossed over. And in my reading, I can't gloss it over either. If you go away uncomfortable with me today, that's good. I'm uncomfortable with me too. Seriously. You'd think at 65, with all these years in the Word, I'd have better answers. But then I invite you to spend some time this week with me at the foot of the cross. We pray with me. Father, we thank you this is not the end of Israel's story, but really just close to the beginning. Lord, shape us protect us we thank you for your ministering spirits we thank you that we know that nations around us aren't our great enemy there's an evil one and we pray that you will have your way in our lives, in our thinking, in our hearts. We ask, Father, that we would truly become a cruciform, a cross-shaped people. That Jesus' invitation for us to daily take up our cross and follow him wouldn't just be abstract words. That we'll push through our glib, easy answers and engage one another and others around us, especially those with whom we disagree and careful and thoughtful and really listening communication. Father, have mercy. Have mercy on our souls. Have mercy on our state, on our nation. 
And even as your goal was to shape Israel into a light for the nations, we pray you'll shape us in that way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen.